Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 564 for the 1st of September 2021. On today's show, I'm chatting to saxophonist and NEA jazz master Dave Liebman. Dave, or Lieb as I refer to him throughout this interview, is considered a renaissance man in contemporary music with a career stretching over 50 years. He has played with masters including Miles Davis, Elvin Jones, Chick Corea, and McCoy Tyner, authored many, many books, taught around the world, and recorded as a leader in styles ranging from classical to free jazz. Dave was last on the jazz session in 2010, so we were definitely due for a catch-up, especially because he has a new album, Selflessness, out on Dot Time Records on the 3rd of September, a day before his 75th birthday. This album is another one of his tributes to the great tenor saxophonist John Coltrane, and it's a real privilege to hear one of our jazz greats, and one of my favourite storytellers, share anecdotes about a life lived in jazz. Welcome back to the jazz session. Thank you for inviting me again. I, I didn't, can't say I remember 12, 15 years ago, but I'm sure we had a wonderful time. Well, it was over a decade ago, and I can barely remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Jason Crane, the founder of this show, did the honours then, and I'm incredibly privileged to be chatting to you now, a decade later. Not only do you have a wonderful album, Selflessness, out soon, but you also have a birthday around the corner. Good timing. Really. Great timing. You know, I started with train and I'm ending with, well, not ending, but, um, you know, I'm beginning and end in the sense that I've explored train in a lot of different ways over the years. And uh, this is a record with my group of the, of the present time, the last five years. So there's a little bit of a different spin on the tunes. And, uh, some of it straight ahead and some of it it's synthesizer and some effects, you know, trying to use the, the language of the day. Well, it's a wonderfully nuanced and exciting album, and I love that you have, again, paid tribute to the saxophonist John Coltrane because he has so richly influenced your life. And speaking of rich influence, I don't want to insert myself into your interview, but I did want to mention that it is 10 years to the year that I graduated from the Manhattan School of Music, where I was one of your students since you oversaw the graduate program as artist in residence there. And you have richly influenced my life. I think about you and your teachings often. For that, I am very grateful. And I will reference those teachings throughout this interview. But first things first, how does it feel to be approaching 75? Well, it feels weird. I mean, it's like I have no idea that 
it's not when I wake up and say I'm 75, it's like uh, I can't believe it. You know, what I mean, it's like you know, besides all the cliches, where did the time go? And you get better as you get older. All half truths, maybe full, slightly quarter truths, but uh, it is. I just have no idea. I mean, I don't. I don't feel anything. I, I'm just uh, when I when I think about it, it kind of it chills me out in a way. It's like God, that's a long time that you've been doing this. In our case, you know, we got the music, and it's been the music since 50, over 50 years. So uh, I'll have a better answer for you as, as maybe the day, maybe in you know, two weeks when I turn 75, and I'll have a better, more poetic answer, full of wisdom, of course. Of course, but no pressure. The full title of the album is Selflessness, the music of John Coltrane. And for anyone who is familiar with your work, they'll know that Train has had a huge influence on your life. And you first heard him when you were 15 years old, so going on 60 years ago, at Birdland in New York City. That was 1962. Yeah, we're just checking that I am able to read a press release and regurgitate that information back to you. And you would go on to play with Train's drummer, Elvin Jones, so there's one degree of separation there. It does seem like the well is bottomless when it comes to Train's music and his influence on jazz at large. Is there anything that you discovered that was new when you were making this album? Uh, that the music he wrote, which is most of what is on the record, uh, is very malleable. Uh, I'm not going to say you can just you can do a waltz and then you can do a cha-cha, but you can basically... There are directions you can take on this music. He, You know, he was... He was early in a lot of ways. He was, I mean, his work was before the use of certain scales, uh, of course, the late Coltrane, cacophony aspect, etc. Um, and uh, he kind of, it's like he had a master plan. And he died at 40. And I'm not, not going to say he finished what he started, but he, there was a sense of closure looking back upon it. There was a sense of closure that this guy had done his job and done his, you know, and really, in, in, in very organized and very, you know, coherent and uh, intense and got more intense as he got older. He went the opposite of what most people do. They get, they get more mellow. He got, you know, more wild and more uninhibited. So there are some things we train that uh, are unique to him. And then it's just the fact that, you know, um, he had fair, fairly good amount of success with Love Supreme. So marketing-wise, he was in pretty good shape. Um, he was acknowledged as the master that he was. And of course, the people just decided to decide for it. People had a lot of trouble with his late train because it was not at all melodic, but it was melodic, really, beautiful melodies. Um, and uh, it was several saxophone players could be playing at the same time for 20 minutes. Pharaoh, Saunders, and Archie Shep, and Albert Eiler. You know, he, he supported the new movement the free jazz movement, which was at its uh, peak in the mid to late 60s. And his, this, was, this was the chief sanctioning, and now it's actually joining up, being complicit in free jazz. Uh, so that was remarkable. It's that last two years, it really, uh, it's, a, it's a whole other study. As his giant steps and so and kind of blue, as his my favorite things. You know, there's like four or five things you can say about him, and every jazz fan will say, yes, there's that part of train that... Uh,
let's talk about the group that you record with on this album. It's your band called Expansions. I think this is your fifth album together, and we should mention who the musicians are. There's Tony Marino on bass, Matt Vishleshen on reeds, the fantastic Bobby Avey on piano, I love how you showcase him, and Alex Ritz on drums. I like that you foster a sense of longevity within many of the ensembles that you work. What was it like recording this specific album with these musicians? Well, first of all, I can't tell you I remember much because we, I think it's 2017, I believe. It certainly wasn't more than 2018. That's four or five years ago. Um, but the, even the name expansions, what was happening to me around, you know, I've been with Byrak and with Quest and, you know, and we had a nice long thing there. And uh, I wanted to do some different stuff. Um, and I wanted to be with younger musicians because they hear different as we did to the beboppers. I'm, I'm a post bebop. I'm not a bebop player. I can, I can get by, of course. But uh, there was the, um, they were having a party, you know, and I don't want to be left out, the young cats, you know what I mean? Um, that means the, the uh, machines, and Bobby has this piano that's, I don't know, that it's like from another planet, you know? And Matt is usually, uh, not an iwi, but it's like an iwi. And Alex plays hand drums. I'm the only one up there with one horn, the lonely soprano, uh, on purpose. Uh, so they're very spontaneous. They're um, of the generation, except for Tony. Tony is a lot of his older, of course. But they're the generation that was new. I mean, Coltrane is another one of many influences on this generation. It might be my main influence, but when you go to the other guys, it, that would be part of it, but not necessarily the whole thing. So. Uh, I don't remember, except I know we recorded at Red Rock where we did a couple of records. And uh, I tried to get it released at its time. And then uh, finally, uh, uh, this label that my daughter has been working with as a PR person, person the Dot Records, uh, they said yes, so well, that's where we're at. Well, they're smart people and no doubt thrilled to have you on board. And I do love that you have such familiarity with your bandmates. I always think that it must do wonders for ease of musical communication. I hope that was the case here. Lieb, could you talk a bit about your time playing with Miles Davis? He was 40 years old, I think, when you were in his band. You were roughly, I don't know, 20 years his junior. And if you could tell us a bit about that time in general, but also you're so generous towards younger jazz musicians and you have a real curiosity about them. Did Miles have a similar outlook when it came to younger generations? Uh, I'm not sure, of course, because we didn't talk about it in those terms, but uh, <laughs> he, um, I mean, Miles wanted to be on the cusp of change, like everybody, but even more in this guy's case, because he was always on the cusp. And, you know, he had a, he had a reputation to uh, take care of and to be aware of. Like he was the leader of the pack. And that means getting guys who are you know, maybe known, maybe unknown, putting together weird combinations. I mean, the band I worked with was Beyond the Corner Band. Uh, two guitars, we even had three guitars for a couple of weeks. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on and uh, people wanted to be part of whatever Miles did. You know, he was a, he was a real personality. Um, I can't tell you that I understood the music book. I didn't say understood, of course I understood it, but that I could decipher the music that we were playing. And in fact, it took maybe a couple of decades. <laughs> and when I had to write liner, I was asked to write liner notes for uh, Get Up With It back in for Dark Magus. And uh, I listened, of course, now with a different ear because I was going to write about it. 
And you know what? He did know what he was doing. <laughs> He, he, he wasn't just fooling around. He was, he, he had something in his mind. I remember when the night, the night had dawned on me, he used to have a, like a food spread in his suite. This one went on the road and uh, food for the band. And the band would eat not much like that. You know? And then they would leave and I would stay. And he didn't want to be alone. And uh, I'd stay and we were, you know, slightly inebriated, of course. And uh, Suddenly, we put on the cassette in those days. It was the beginning of the cassette. And I don't know if I was in the right state of mind, an open state of mind, less judgmental state of mind, all the stuff that you have when you're young, which is a kind of a drag, but that's part of what you got to do. You know? And I said, I looked at him, I said, I got it. I said, I know what you want to do. I didn't start reciting what I want to do, but this is what I, what I thought. It was a big James Brown influence. But the big guy, the guy who was influential on everybody in that age was Sly. Sly Stone, um, because rhythmically, besides any kind of melodies and any kind of lyrics, which of course is, you know, across the board for pop music, is, you know, but uh, Sly, James Brown, and really black culture, uh, and it's this is pre-rap, so you didn't have the voice of, you know, this was a was it was new, it was different, and it was very dissonant, it was very loud. It was very electric, and Miles sounded like a mouse or a rat. You know, you know, he had that that wah wah pedal which he killed to death. Uh, so he had even a, and this is one of the greatest ballad players that ever, ever lived, with one of the most beautiful sounds on an instrument that you could think of the trumpet, and he's playing like the wah wah pedal. So it did take you a minute to say, hmm, this must be a reason for this, and uh, it was. There was he was thinking about other stuff, other things. When I hear you share stories about your time with Miles Davis or other jazz greats, I am struck by how in many ways you are my Miles Davis or Elvin Jones and any stories that I share with jazz fans or jazz students will have been tales that I heard from you first. And it does make me reflect on how precious this time with you is and the fact that it's documented really just makes me so, so happy. You've spoken a lot about mentorship. You also teach and offer mentorship that way. Obviously, the times have changed. We're not in bars learning from jazz masters in that way as much as we are actually getting formal tertiary educations where we are learning from these jazz greats who are now lecturers. What are your thoughts on the changes in jazz education generally? Well, jazz has a really good past and rich, rich stuff. And it's a hundred years plus. So it's convenient. It fits on the page with a hundredth anniversary. And it's more than that. It's like you had lived the living exponents of the music alive. And still, Benny Golson, Sheila Jordan, Wayne, of course. And this is unusual in an art form. Unless you were around with Rembrandt's predecessor. Or Picasso, you know, looking at George Brock stuff and saying, I could use some of that stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, this was a, a period when you had the, the very masters who molded this music available to listen to. I mean, in New York at that time, you could go to the Village Vanguard, go up to afterwards to the Birdland, get a beer, go to the next club, go to an after house club, and everywhere somebody was playing, um, different, of course, different styles and so forth, but basically communing. And that great, it was a great spirit, you know, it was, it was fantastic. And that was New York, and you were done at two, three in the morning. 
I mean, this is what it was. And uh, for musicians, it was Mecca because remember, we didn't have the record situation, the recording situation, the way it became, um, in the sense that everything was available by the touch of a finger, your finger on a, a, on a pad, an iPad, or something like that. And uh, so that had a lot to do, has a lot to do with trying to get the younger musicians, school, the musicians in school, to understand the value of that music and be able to play it. And they can. A lot of them are very good at it, They're extremely good at it. Um, so we try to, if, if I'm going to be at 75 and maybe then hopefully 85 or 90, as Benny Golson is, as a couple of guys I named, uh, my job is to keep these people, these, these students, close to what the truth is. And they get it. They get it. You all, you know, you're bright as hell. I mean, the generation is like, you know, in school, touch of computer, you got the whole world in front of you. And then, you know, it's great. But uh, I know, I'm, I, I actually, I think it's in, in, in some ways, it's the best period jazz ever had. And it's eclecticism. And it's amount of musical experiments that are going on. You know, with bebop, with modal jazz, post-culture, electronics, world music, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, people, the, the students now are in school, you were in school, uh, really get good training. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't have the training that you had, I had the, the street, we call it the street, you know, it's not the romantic. It's looking over a piano player's shoulder and saying, what voicing is that? It's trying to get, you know, so-and-so to say a sentence or two to you besides get me a drink. I mean, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, there were hands-on exposure to everybody. And that, of course, results in great mixtures of music. And that's what we have now. Um, just to finish this thought, of course, on the second side is the business and, of course, the pandemic. So now you have pandemic slash business, which we would have had in the business thing anyway, the discussion. What happened to the record companies? Why are there no more clubs? Blah, 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 blah. And then the endemic thing comes, comes in, and that place, now that's part of our, that's, that's life now. So we are at a real cusp, big time, between, you know, Virgo and whatever sign the other one is. Um, it's a very, it's, we have no idea what's going to happen. And this is true of every field in, of endeavor, especially for artists. I mean, people who suffered the most from this uh, plague uh, were students who need interaction. That's why they're there. You must have played a lot. I mean, you played, you know, you, you had a, three drums to choose from. And, uh, and you had venues that encouraged it. Well, we don't have those venues somewhere. You know, okay, there was Vanguard, Birdland, Blue Note. Okay, you get big ones. A couple of small ones in, in you know, Brooklyn, a lot, a lot of action, a lot of smoke, no fire kind of thing, you know, maybe. But uh, we're going to have to see what happens, Nikki. It's, uh, I mean, we will have a different talk a year or two from now. And yeah. One way, one way or the other. Well, I look forward to taking stock then. I want to talk about some of the repertoire on this album, but namely the inclusion of My Favourite Things. Now, I must admit that I obviously know who John Coltrane is, but I'm not as familiar with his music and playing as I should or could be. For many folks, they will see that My Favourite Things is on the track listing and they'll know why, because they are admirers of Train and they link the two together. For other folks who are not familiar with his legacy and output, at least they will know that tune because it's a Rodgers and Hammerstein hit from The Sound of Music. And I want to talk about your approach to it because it has this gorgeous, really sensational free piano intro from Bobby A.V. Unbelievable. He's, a, he's like a whole thing. I mean, he is way ahead of the game. You know? Yeah. 
doing he's he's repairing pianos that's what he's doing now good job yeah. and he just had a daughter you know the way the world is now but he is an exceptional artist. yeah well i love how you showcase him on this tune it's a joy to hear and then after his piano intro the band comes in in four four very good <laughs> <laughs> Thank gosh, $50,000 at a conservatory taught me how to identify time signatures. But for folks who know the original, it's in 3-4, it's a waltz. Train's version is also in 3-4. So can you tell us about your take on my favorite things and the decision to put it into 4-4? It's one beat among friends, that's all. <laughs> exactly. You know, we can always spare a beat. Uh, Three-chord is a hard beat, a hard um, feel. The best exponent of that was Elvin. Because Elvin didn't play like one, two, three, one, two, three. He'd be like more of a six feel and therefore more spread out, not so pointy. And that, you know, now I, I, I actually recorded this version of it in the 90s on a record called Something for Train, it was a record company I was with for a while. And uh, they asked me the same question how come it 4 4? The reason is because musically it kind of lifts off the bandstand a little bit, especially if you get it at a certain tempo. And of course, also, as far as the head goes, I reharmonize it, which I do all the time. And, you know, just set a mood, which in 4-4 can work sometimes in some ways better. It depends on the tune and the material and who the, who the people are. But uh, playing 3-4 is, is tricky because it's a little bit of a box, a little straight jack. quick note about supporting the jazz session. This podcast doesn't have any big fancy sponsors. It's a one woman show supported by listeners who enjoy these interviews so much that they decide to become members over at Patreon. You can head to thejazzsession.com slash join and opt in to one of two membership tiers. For $5 a month, you'll get track of the week, a weekly episode where an artist tells us about a track of their new album and then you hear the song in question. 
For $10, you'll get track of the week plus a monthly bonus episode of the Jazz Sessions spin-off series, The Insider, where I chat to industry insiders. These could be journalists, publicists, booking agents, label heads, broadcasters about the nuts and bolts of the jazz business. Again, head to thejazzsession.com slash join for more information about Patreon membership. And if becoming a member doesn't tickle your fancy, then please feel free to tweet Facebook or Instagram about how much you enjoy the show, tell a friend or a family member, word of mouth does wonders in helping other folks discover the podcast and become future listeners and potential patrons. Now, back to the show. Train's musical output is absolutely vast. How did you decide which tunes exactly you were going to include on this album? Well, it has to do with who was, who was going to be playing it. In this case, I knew the band would be playing it. But I had arranged these tunes years ago, in some cases, and uh, counted on the energy, as we talked about earlier, of being in a studio with young creative musicians, which is a whole scene in itself. Um, yeah. Uh, favorite thing, I mean, you could not play favorite things in a Coltrane tribute. It would be apparently missing. And I have a little short story here, because I've said, said this many times, but uh, I was in Italy with Elvin. This is where this is in the 80s. We did a couple of tours together. And uh, we were having a little Chianti and a little wine in the train, you know, on the European trains, you face each other. And I said, Elvin, I, I got a question for you. I know it's kind of corny, and uh, I'll be embarrassed to ask you this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Said, how many times did you play my favorite things? Uh, you know, right away, it's a loaded question because Big Morning's going to answer that. Uh, he said, well, he said, well, and then he went into his amazing personality. Well, Lieb, et cetera. Um, we played it every night. Sometimes we played it twice a night. He said, after all, that was John's hit tune. You tell me how many times. So I made a quick calculation. I came up with 1,200 to 1,500 because they worked 40 weeks a year. They played it once at least a night, if not twice. And on a Saturday night when you had a crowd staying late, you're going to probably play what's familiar. You know? um, so I said, uh, 1,500. He said, and then it got heavy for me. And he came right up in my face and he said, I don't know how many goddamn times we played it, but I'll tell you one thing. And it got closer, more dramatic. We played it like there was no tomorrow. And then he looked back and says, you understand? I said, yes, sir. This is a little teaching. This was a teaching thing, man. I mean, I loved Elvin. He was so, just the way he looks and seems is the way he was. He was so, such a, took a mention, mention, gentleman and a scholar, my father would describe it. And had been around the block, you know, was definitely not an innocent uh, pup. You know, he'd been around. And I got him in my life at a very good time when I really needed someone to look up to. Who, who would know more than I did, I mean, in a certain sense. And that's where Elvin and Miles came into play, of course, and Pete LaRocca, too, I, always, I should always mention him. Uh, so then he kind of finished, and he kind of leaned back, he said, nice story, yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. This is, this is yes, sir kind of stuff. You know, when, they, when they give you that kind of thing, you got to back up and say, okay, now, no nuance, what's the truth? What is it that you want to say or have to say to you or something like that? And that was a, a moment there. And that was my favorite things. Which, the last story, was the, the tune that when I first saw Coltrane, as you mentioned, 62, with the young lady who was the flute, uh, 
flute player in the orchestra, because it was high school. Uh, they went into this tune, you know, after the shock of seeing them play. I mean, I couldn't believe it was a saxophone, the same saxophone I had at home. Uh, it was like, you know, so it goes into a tune. She said, Julie, she says, that's from the sound of music. I said, what? She said, that's my favorite thing, so the sound of music. Jesus. Said, Those guys aren't going to play something like that. <laughs> you know, in other words, implying that that's too corny. That you know, who, who would come down from on high to play like my favorite things? It's just a ditty talk three, four. Come on. You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> his, he, they, they, they played that tune different every couple of years. The versions in 1661 is one thing. The versions in 63, 64, in the middle, middle train, late train, he did it live at the Village Vanguard. You know, they played one tune, two tunes, that's what they did. Uh, we, they treated that tune like it was inexhaustible. And it's, uh, it's I mean, I, now I, I like the words to it a lot and everything, but I mean, it wasn't, it, you would never expect this to become the keynote speaker, so to say, of a jazz set. And he made it into a hit. And uh, you're right about it, that people not, might not know who it is and the name or anything like that, but to go, oh, 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 I know that song. Oh, what's the name of that? You know, it is amazing song. because actually so many of the jazz standard tunes that come from musicals are there because those original songs had such interesting melodic construction and harmonic progressions. Whereas my favorite things, the B section is interesting, the bridge, but the A section is one chord, it's modal jazz. It's vanilla, but it, huh. the way they played it, they did change it. Did yeah. Change it. Without changing the harmony, so, so to say, but the arrangement and the feel it, from the from the opening record, from the Life Everything's record, to like the him doing it in 1965, half note, was miles of miles of musical distance in between. Yeah. Well, it's a great example of how the parameters of jazz are just so wide that you can breathe new life into a tune time and time again. And that is really what we're supposed to be doing when it comes to American Songbook Fair. And of course, if you go back and hear Julie Andrews sing the original, you really get a sense of how many different ways there are to approach this tune. It's wild. How he took that tune. Yeah. I mean, so one of the widest tunes in the world here is like, you know, Mr. African-American playing from the songbook, a tune that you would never think of. There were good ones in the songbook. Favorite things, like you say, has a little bit of interest, but not like Stella by Starlight, which is no. an excellent and interesting tune, you know, even Green Dolphin to some extent. That Elvin anecdote is great. Lieb, when you were at Manhattan School of Music, the cornerstone of your teachings was a book that you authored, the cover of which is etched on my mind forever, and it was called A Chromatic Approach to Jazz Harmony. It is what it says it is. And I found your teachings immensely challenging for two reasons. Firstly, I was a vocalist, so it was all about could I hear it, and if I could hear it, I could sing it. Unlike the instrumentalists, I wasn't pressing a button and having a specific note come out. Secondly, your aesthetic, so much of the sound of your music and the world that you choose to live in was incredibly foreign to me and was very far outside my comfort zone. And it wasn't where I chose to dwell given the choice. So as a result, I really felt like you were literally stretching my ears to expand their capabilities to hear different dissonant sounds, things that were, I like to say, crunchy, atonal, chromatic, 
And then, of course, you were teaching us how to resolve everything. So it was immensely challenging. But ever since I studied with you in that program, I have had what Oprah likes to call aha moments, where I have either sung, improvised, or written, composed something quite atonal and kind of had an out-of-body experience where I think, wow, that's really impressive. Did I write that? And then, of course, I think, ah, tip of the hat to Lieb because this is his doing, this is his influence. So thank you for really broadening my capabilities of what I could hear and therefore what I could consider using in a musical context. Can you talk a bit about tension and release, which are really two sides of the coin. You can't have one without the other in jazz that is seen as good jazz and successful. Can you speak about that balancing act between those two things? You mean tension and release? Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially in my book, and in, in that language, it's very important when you release because it makes the tension viable. Uh, it's not like bebop where we have cadences every, well, certainly every eight bars, if not every four bars, and it's pretty much dictated to you, and you play through the map. It's a road map on driving on the highway. Don't stop here, stop there, get back on the road. And uh, the main thing I want to do with the book, and it's nice to hear you define it, is open your ears. Open your ears up. I mean, I probably said this because I'm too, you know, exaggerated a little bit. I must have said something like, uh, you'll never look at a C chord the same in a few years. C major chord. I don't know if I played that E flat minor over A flat over C. And uh, so that is a 12 note one chord. Now, where, which which one of the notes should it be? Depends on what came before. You got all 12, you got a lot of, a lot of room, but you have it away, a lot, a lot of room that you better fill up. So that was part of it. That's kind of one of the sort of guidelines of the what I was trying to do. And then really, it's a way of thinking. This chromatic approach, you know, upper half step, tritone, uh, different scale quality, et cetera, et cetera. So I really think of the book as a workbook more than any kind of, so it's not philosophical. It's a theoretical, a great deal of it, and everything, but it's a, it's a workbook. If you go through even a little bit of what I put in, and you know, it's kind of time, not time consuming, it's, it's, you got to plot. It's a plotting kind of thing. Uh, if you do that, the rewards are that you have more chances on a blues <laughs> or on a ballad or on a tune that hasn't been created yet. You're going to have more choices on how you look at the material and especially, and you named it, for composition because that's where you have a chance to really hear something. And it's slow, you know, usually. And uh, when you're sitting down and not playing, but you're back listening to your output. And uh, I, I, I was... We taught it, I taught it for 10, 20 years, I think I taught it for. And uh, sometimes I said, and with Phil, Phil Markowitz, and of course Richie was always in the shadows, but he was there. He was living, not living in New York, but Richie Byrack was there. And he, he really was, he helped me set the whole thing up in a way. You know? um, I said to Phil, I said, I don't know if they're getting it, man. I mean, you know, first of all, kind of blank face. Uh, and, uh, you know, they don't really need to know to play like this. It's me talking. He said, you don't know, man. You have no idea what a big influence it is. Blah, 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 blah. He made me feel good. It was great. He's a, he's a complete master also, as you know, if you have, as a teacher. He's, a, he's off the charts with teaching, playing. He's, I mean, I compliments. Best musician I've ever known was Chick Corea. Next best, Phil Marcos. And that is a big statement because that's me best. You mean fastest? You know, it means depth. So, depth of material and of knowledge of the material. 
and the ability to use it as Shakespeare and this whole day and Richie, you know, and, and seemingly you, you know. So if you turn on one face to get into like liking that music, you gotta get past the, gotta get past the red border. Once you do, as you know, you, you get something out of it and you, 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 you expressed it. Your choices went up in scale. It became many more than it was before. So if it's only that, it's worth it. Thank you note to the folks who make the jazz session possible, namely the members who support it over at Patreon, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music. You can follow the jazz session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There is also a Jazz Session YouTube channel where you'll find video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. You can rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and that will make the show more visible to future listeners and potential patrons. You will find a detailed track listing for the music played throughout today's interview in the show notes for this episode. Now, back to the interview. So the world is opening up and you're going to be celebrating the release of this new album, Selflessness, with two nights at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Lucky New Yorkers will get to go and see you live. That's on the 4th and 5th of September. Are you looking forward to those performances? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this, uh, uh, this music is more user-friendly than my typical stuff. I mean, I'm not an avant-garde, you know, but I do like to play in that vein. And uh, this music goes beyond even that, you know, you've got some great melodies and the way the band is playing them, it's, you know, hopefully another look, another of the many looks of many musicians on culture. Yeah. And his career is very short, meteor, meteoric rise to 40 years old. It's unbelievable. I mean, he started at 55 to be known. And then by 50, 67, he was dead. It's unbelievable how much he did oh. in 12 years as far as output. It's remarkable. I mean, it's like Mozart. You know, so I love that comparison. Very apt. Mozart indeed. Lieb, you're immensely generous. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When it comes to younger jazz musicians, you encourage them, you mentor them, you work and play with them. You're curious about what they're up to. 
I don't want to push you over into 75-year-old curmudgeon territory or, or make a cynic out of you. But to take a kind of reverse approach to this question, while you are complimentary about what is happening in jazz today, is there anything that you see or hear from younger jazz musicians that would make you say, oh, I wouldn't do that, or I would guard against that, or I wish there was less of that and more of that? Well, I never thought of it like that. Cynic cynicism, thinking you know when you don't know nothing. And that is, you know, it's very easy to fall on that part of the pillow when you go to sleep because it's all around you. And you might be correct, by the way. You want the, the, the person or the thing that you that was under examination actually turned out to be it's kind of jive, you know, like that. Um, but this is a music of love and of respect and of mutual um, feelings that reflect in the music. And this is what's so special jazz because it's about this individual, you're out there soloing, and it's about the group, you're supporting the soloists. To put it very simply. And uh, that is, you don't see that in other music, of course, and Indian music is amazing. And, and there's pop music that's amazing and all that. But this is like everybody's out there with their clothes off and, and, and moving ahead. And, and being convincing, being thoughtful, being honest, being awake, all kinds of positive stuff that you should be going through. And uh, once you get used to being positive, it's a lot easier than being a negative. That's all I can tell you. You know, I went through my cynicism period. Me and Richie used to, you know, we'd say, ah, that mofo can't play shit, you know, like, you know, which might have been true. Um, but then again, true according to who? According to you? Well, your standards maybe are different than the other person to take that into consideration when you make a judgment call, et cetera, et cetera. Sage words from a master, an actual master, because you are an NEA jazz master. And I hope that I'm like you when I'm 75. Well, you have a wonderful disposition, I'm sure. You're, you're very pleasant and you're smart. And, you know, those are two things that get you a long way. Pleasant. Well, I'm glad you think so. I feel I'm not as pleasant as I seem. And my cynicism does run rampant at times. I see. I don't know you well, but if it is, turn, turn it down. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Take one, one cynical remark or feeling and just cancel on that for the next five weeks. All right. Noted. And listeners here are going to hold me accountable to that. I'll try and approach it with the same discipline that I did when I was wading through the exercises in your book, A Chromatic Approach to Jazz Harmony. Hopefully... Yeah, that will be a good bar to which I can rise. Dave, thank you so much for being on the Jazz Session and for being the first guest of the season and my first guest as host. Thank you for inviting me and uh, you're, you're good at this. Keep it going. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely to see you again and I hope that the performances on the 4th and the 5th are just wonderful. And happy birthday! Oh, thank you. It's starting to be like that's going to be the call for the next few weeks. Yeah. Okay, you the first. Yeah. Yes. All right, honey. Take care and good luck.
A huge thank you to this week's guest, Dave Liebman. Dave's new album, Selflessness, comes out on Dot Time Records on Friday the 3rd of September and he'll be at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola celebrating the release of the album on the 4th and 5th of September where you can wish him happy birthday in person. If you enjoyed what you just heard, then consider becoming a member and you'll get all sorts of perks and bonus content. More information about membership can be found at thejazzsession.com slash join. I'm Nikki Schrera, and I will see you, in inverted commas, next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>